everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top news stories and analysis every single week. Back with me today, I have Henry and Jess from the Somex team. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Good morning. All good here, thank you. Yeah, all good over here as well. All right. That was a quick one this week. Uh, <laughs> what, have guys, what, what have you guys been up to? I was going to swear then. But what? we do this, we, we do... <laughs> we do this every week then. The pretense is that we haven't just spent an hour doing our Friday team call and that we have to be like, hey, well, here's the thing I just told you about. And then one of us to go, that's interesting. Tell us more about the thing you just told us about. Like we've all got amnesia. Like <laughs> Anyway. Right. Let's talk about some health tech. All right. Story number one this week. So this is a study from Nature where they've talked about, well, it's an article in Nature anyway, where they're talking about health tech-specific risks for medical malpractice liability. So it is US-based, but basically what they're talking about here, they're, they're talking about where does the liability lie when it comes to health tech. And just going through this, they put it into a few different sections. They talk about telehealth. They talk about AI technologies for clinical decision support. They talk about mHealth, which is broadly sort of apps that do things that then clinicians will take as gospel and then make decisions off the back of. They talk about electronic health records. So I've had a read of this and I I think it's a really interesting one for us to talk about today because I don't know about you guys, but I if I'm on panels or if I'm talking about health tech broadly, this is something that comes up quite a lot, which is when something goes wrong, who is to blame? And how do we then fix it once someone has been blamed? And I think what was really interesting reading this article for me is that overall, despite this looking into lots of different surveys and lots of other studies about all these different parts, it's basically really messy. It's it's not really clear at all. And there is little to no precedent when it comes to decisions that have been made on this and actual liability and and places where this has done harm and, and it's gone to court and things like that. So there's actually very little when it comes to Preston. So really, this is all still quite up in the air. What was a little bit concerning is that in some of this around AI, it kind of gets all the way to court and then it falls to the jurors to then make a call on this, which begs the question of training and I suppose, how can we trust those people to make the decision? It's people clearly arguing on both sides and then it gets all the way. That far. It, anyway, that bit was super interesting. On the apps bit, it talks about clinician responsibility if things go wrong quite heavily. So where a clinician is using information from one of these apps, it seems to be that there is quite a lot of responsibility on the clinician to know and understand that that app is using clinically valid algorithms information. Um, and if something has gone wrong, it's talked about, you know, did that clinician look at that bit of data in relation to other data to do with that patient? Was that bit of data that they got from the app an outlier? You know, I, I can remember I mean, when I was a doctor, I remember taking, uh, well, I remember looking up a blood test. It got handed over to me to look up a blood test for a patient, right? And I, I looked at this, this blood test and when things are low or high on this system, they go red compared to everything else almost everything on this one result was red and you could see the trend. Everything was normal, 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 normal. Then all of a sudden, everything was red. And I looked at the patient in the bed and they were, you know, sat up talking relatively fine. And I was like, 
what on earth has just gone wrong? And I was a really junior doctor. I was sort of panicked by this thinking like, oh my goodness, how on earth do I diagnose and treat this person now? Like they're fine, they're about to crash, blah, blah, blah. But then I just sort of took a deep breath and thought about it and just went, I wasn't the one that took this blood. I wasn't the one that labeled this blood. Could this be another patient's blood? Anyway, turns out this was an ITU patient's blood that had somehow got labeled with this patient on the ward's details and it was being reported on there. But it was only because I saw that this blood was really outlying the trend that I then went and thought about it. So I think it's that that they're talking about here with apps. I think they're talking about there is a responsibility here for clinicians to really understand like what that app is doing and also is the data that it's bringing out in relation to everything else. So I thought that bit was interesting too. Um, but yeah, they talk about lots of different things in it, particularly when they're talking about solutions for for this you know, lack of precedent understanding. They talk about training and the fact that clinicians really should be trained in technology with the speed that it's coming through and different technologies and what they do, particularly is it on the organizations that use those technologies to train the clinicians and interesting kind of questions on this sort of stuff. Anyway, really useful article i think for everybody in health tech to read this it references many many studies um, across all those different areas it separates all the different technologies out to sort of our level of understanding of health tech so um yeah very very good from nature this well the stat in it that got me the most was the 50 percent of internal data breaches are traced back to negligence on the part of a clinician mm. that's really like the blame thing, as you say, is the interesting one there because interesting thing there because is it the software provider's job to ensure that they create software that it's very difficult to leak data from? Is it their job to ensure that the training they provide is adequate to make sure that if the clinician does that, it's on them? Is it the clinician's responsibility? Is it the hospital? Like, there's so many people who could be responsible for that, and as you say, the fact that the article just goes, "Lol, let's wait till it gets to court," is worrying mm. yeah i think we've spoken before about how in the future of medical training um training on the use of digital technologies is going to have to be such a big part of it because it's just going to be part of being a doctor in the future and i think if doctors understand better about how these technologies work how they're programmed how they make these decisions and these recommendations then that should reduce the errors and reduce the risk because of the way that they just understand they can make better decisions if they know how the technology is thinking yeah definitely i think there's, i think there's so much on that I, I i think the training the training of clinicians really really needs to be looked at with this sort of stuff and, and this really highlights it because as you say henry a blame culture just is not good for anybody and where there is lack of confidence we, we should be really empowering people to be confident using technology not more fearful and if we start blaming people and inadequately training them and if they are not sure where the liability lies and therefore they don't use out of fear or they're told that the liability sits with them and they don't feel that that's okay because they haven't been trained properly it just it's really a recipe for disaster it's almost like a perfect storm of how not to get innovation through and how not to get technology through because you're really cutting it off at the point of the users by sort of not doing this properly and yeah to read that at some in some cases this has got all the way to jurors to make decisions Oof. yeah anyway very very interesting article to read this one for everybody in health tech i think all right on to story number two so story number two this week voice biomarker tech 
analyzes your voice for signs of depression. Um, this is something that's definitely been around a little while now. But Jess, what's going on with this one? Okay, so yeah, this is a piece from Axios um, and just a bit of a look at some software that analyzes your speech. And the developers of the software are claiming that these little snippets of conversation um, can be used to pick up whether you are suffering from anxiety or depression. So the way it works is that hospitals and insurance companies are like recording the calls which they're getting on with their customers. And with the permission of the customers, they are then running these snippets of conversation through some AI and then the AI is flagging whether they're showing the signs of depression, stress, anxiety. Um, and then if they are, it's being flagged, then the patients are then getting referred for um, to talk to a human who can do a proper diagnosis. Yeah, really interesting use of this kind of technology. And some people seem very excited about it. Um, insurers definitely seem excited about it. Um, but there is scepticism. Um, so there's um, an editorial in The Lancet who, and they've said there's still a long way to go before AI-powered AI vocal biomarkers can be endorsed by the clinical community. Um, so they're not really jumping on the enthusiasm bandwagon. <laughs> um, and there are people um, flagging that it might increase systematic bias. And someone else, Beth Semmel, saying that my research suggests that the ability of AI to identify vocal biomarkers is often oversold or else glosses over the highly subjective processes involved in building these systems. Almost the consensus is that this could be exciting technology and it could be super useful, but like there are also a lot of risks involved and it also could be done badly. Yeah, it's very balanced this. I think it's a good article. It's well written because it talks about why these voice biomarkers matter. It talks about what's in the news, where the, where it is currently, how it works, what different people are saying, positive, negative. I think if if you're looking for a kind of overview of what's actually going on with this technology, this is a really good article to read. And I, the, the, the best bit for me was when they talked about the, the skepticism, actually, and then sort of relating that back. I actually clicked through to that Lancet editorial as well and, and had a read of that. And one thing that the Lancet brings up very well is, is the question about how is this going to be, how is this technology actually going to be used? Is it going to be used for triage or is it going to be used for diagnosis? I.e., if there's a needle in a haystack, is it going to get rid of most of the hay to allow a clinician to go in and find the needle? Or is this purely going to go in and try and find that needle. Now, I think that's really interesting because in that analogy, unless you've got incredible sensitivity and specificity, it might label things as needles that aren't necessarily needles, which is not a good thing. And I think because there's a there's a there's human and human behavior involved in voice, it very accurately talks about many of the biases that can creep in, the fact that it can be gamed and lots of different problems that I'm not saying are unsolvable by any means, but are clearly blockers in the road to this being any kind of nirvana for diagnosing depression in those people that it might for whom it might be an early warning sign. So I think that's a very, very interesting question when it comes to this technology about triage versus diagnosis. And it also talks about 
you know the safety and performance of the algorithms being the most important thing there and and absolutely because as we've just mentioned you know sensitivity sensitivity and specificity need to be incredibly high for this to be usable in either of those scenarios of triage or diagnosis so yeah i thought this was a really really good one Story number three this week, UK-based Gyne Health Startup Day has raised 11.5 million euros to launch an at-home screening kit and to bridge the gender health gap. Jess, what's going on here? So most people, if you've heard of Day, you probably have heard about them for their CBD tampons. That's kind of the flat, their flagship product. Um, so these are tampons which have CBD in them and I think the aim of that is to like help support people with period pain so without having to take a lot of painkillers and they've now raised this 11.5 million um, and they've launched an app well they're about to launch an at-home screening kit so I think the way that it works is that you use a tampon to get a sample of your vaginal microbiome um, which you can then send off to get analysed and then it will be able to tell you if you're suffering from any vaginal infection, so like thrush or BV, um, or if you have any disruptions in the microbiome. Um, so this is the first time I've ever heard of any kind of vaginal microbiome testing at home kit. So this is like really big, um, the real first there. And I think they've, they're trying to do this to kind of improve women's access to sexual health care um, because at the moment like maybe there's stigma about going to your GP to be diagnosed with like thrush or BV or it can be difficult to get an appointment and access the treatment so this is just trying to make it a lot easier a lot more accessible I'd be, I'll be keen to try it when it gets released because the microbiome is something which is really taking off in terms of people's understanding of how important it is for for your health. I mean, the gut microbiome people have been talking about for a few years now, um, and just more and more research is coming out about how important your gut microbiome is to your overall health. And now people are starting to talk about vaginal microbiomes and about skin microbiomes as well, all different kinds of microbiome. Yeah, and earlier this week, I was just having a bit of a, a think about what the big what the big talking points would be for for health tech and health in 2023. And one of the things I think is definitely going, we're going to hear a lot more about in 2023 is microbiome in different parts of the body, though, not just the gut. So it's interesting to see that they are also moving in that direction with this, with this product launch. Yeah, and some very credible investors in this as well, with Hambro Perks leading the round. Um, I wonder what their business model is going to be, because is this going to be health system? Is it going to be, I mean, they're launching in the UK, right? So are they going to do this b2c are they going to do this through insurers employers are they gonna i know they've got us presence and so you know it says in the article that the funding's going to help them expand to the us um a market worth 75 billion euros by 2025 so i can yeah i can see it in the us certainly or perhaps they're just going to follow the same route as um sexual health at home testing and things like that in the uk but yeah no that definitely is an interesting one for me Pretty sure they're going D to C and it's like a subscription model. Right. You buy two or three for the year and that allows them to track the differences in your vaginal microbiome between each test, mm. which is, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose with that data of then what they have done and, you know, treatments that they've recommended and patients that they've helped, I suppose you can then do a pretty decent health economic analysis to show uh, particularly UK providers, hey, look, if you actually do this at scale, here's the saving down the line and 
etc etc so yeah it's, it's funny isn't it there's so many of these innovations that that have to kind of go that route whether it's you know direct consumer whether it's private healthcare providers or clinics uh, insurers employers etc to kind of prove that model but yeah it's um an interesting quirk of uk healthcare isn't it um and that's not to say that it's any better or worse than anywhere else we all have our uh, benefits and drawbacks but yeah it's it's clearly a, a get, getting a more popular model um let's just say story number four this week the health tech arms race the land grab for home medical technology continues over on the u.s side henry tell us about this one I'm actually not going to tell you about this one. I'm going to tell you about the other article I've linked in it, which is the From War Rooms to Cancer Battles, History Shows Military Metaphors Are Detrimental to the NHS. Because part of the reason I included this Forbes article was the bombastic title. Look, the Forbes article is a good piece. It's interesting to look at how the US um, health landscape is being changed by the massive companies coming in, CVS, Apple Health, obviously announcing another week that they're going to start doing insurance. Um, and Amazon coming into the space and all of the money they have behind them. But it's more of the same. What I think is really interesting here is the piece in The Independent from uh, Dr. Agnes Arnold Foster about why using military metaphors is so detrimental to the NHS. I know you and I have spoken about this before. I know during the pandemic, there was lots of stuff out there about people saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a hero. I want to do my job. I want to have a normal job where I just do the things that I love doing. And then I'm that's it. I'm not going to work in a cape. So I think this is a really important article and we are all guilty of it. I went back and looked through some of the copy I've written in the past and there's, there is military metaphor in there. There's lots of things that are over the top, but that's more of a writing style thing than anything else. But this has been going on for a long time. The war on cancer, the war on drugs, all of these things are inappropriate is the argument that's made in this. And I think if you do Obviously, I write a health tech newsletter, so if you you should read lots of health tech news every week. But if you read one thing this week, I think this is the best thing that I've read in a while because it's really thought-provoking. We should be thinking about how we use language. We should be thinking about the impact that has on people. The studies that Dr. Arnold Foster has done are all pointing towards this being a highly inappropriate use of language. So I thought that was a very interesting, um, interesting angle and something that everyone is guilty of doing. Yeah, definitely. And... It's funny, isn't it? Metaphor and imagery and language and what it then does to, I suppose, your own experience. If I think back to being a clinician and in the media, things being sensationalized to the point of war, like you've, I think it does. I think it's fair to say that does have an effect on when you go to work and how you feel while you're there, or at least when you're reading that, you then have uh, definitely a visceral reaction to it. And it changes perhaps how you even perceive the work that you're even doing. But yeah, I totally agree. It's one thing that I suppose if you're on the media side, what are you trying to do? Well, you're trying to make stories readable, clickable, clickbait, if I dare say it for certain daily publications. But yeah, it, it's it's an easy one, isn't it, to, to use war? And if, because healthcare is politicised as well, it's another easy way of doing that because there's people on either side of it. There's people fighting for both uh, sides of the argument. So 
yeah, I guess it's nothing that I've ever considered before. You know, what effect does that have on the clinical workforce or indeed any other workforce inside the NHS, even though I've actually been in that position? So, yeah, I did read this. I read the article. I read the independence piece as well. And it has certainly made me think a lot more that perhaps one of our roles as, you know, all, all three of us in communications, in healthcare and technology, that we do consider a lot more the language that we're doing and perhaps we start advocating more for language that is there to serve the people that we want rather than to serve perhaps those with other interests. Um, yeah, definitely one that's given me food for thought. The two that struck me as having sort of not jumped the shark, but moved into just normal parlance were in the trenches and frontline. Mm. On the frontline or in the trenches are things that we just sort of say, like even if we're not talking about healthcare, like you know you're you know in work in a work sense you can be in the trenches, like I've got a lot on, but those are those are horrendous places to be, and it's weird that that's been completely normalised. We talk about the NHS frontline. As though that's just a, oh yeah, obviously you're going to war and not just doing a job. That's a very odd normalisation for me. I, I do think it's worth, though, at this point, if we are now talking about language, to consider that the generation, that there is a generation of people currently who will be linking those two things. That's undeniable. There are people old enough to remember parents that will have fought in World War One in trenches right that, that there will be people for whom that might be uh, an association and therefore it is inappropriate it is one of those things though that over time we do redefine language don't we we do redefine words and phrases but that does not stop it Absolutely. still being inappropriate and i think where that language yeah. leads to thoughts feelings behaviors in other people then yes it needs to be looked at and i think that is the argument here the more that we use varying war metaphors and that doesn't have any sign of letting up then we are going to keep those metaphors relevant and recent so actually as a broader um philosophy then yes perhaps it is incredibly inappropriate that we use these war metaphors when we are talking about healthcare because we're not doing ourselves or anybody working in it any favors it's odd though isn't it because metaphor is super useful like it's one of the most useful communication tools there is and I'm fairly passionate about people being able to use language as expressively as they like. And what I don't want to do is end up in sort of like the Daily Mail gets hold of this and they're like, woke health tech marketing communications agency wants to cancel World War II veterans emotions. And we like the comments are full of people called Terry from Bedfordshire being like, I didn't fight in nine world. Yeah, like, I don't want to end up in that scenario because I think that. The ability to use language freely and in a, to express yourself is, is a good thing. I just think it's worth thinking about a lot of the time that we've normalised the idea that going to work in the NHS is a battle. Completely normalised it. And no one questions it. So that's why I thought this was a really interesting article. Because anything that challenges how you use words on a daily basis is something that we as a comms agency should be hyper aware of. Yeah, definitely. I'm flying in the face of a workforce crisis and all the rest of it as well. I like how we've managed to get comms into pitching this week. <laughs> Almost like it was deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> and on to the final story this week. So X-Wave has partnered with the Royal College of Radiologists to tackle the backlog. Jess, tell us what's going on here. 
X-Wave are an Irish health technology company um, and they've partnered with the RCR to um, have their clinical decision support platform be rolled out across the UK. So this platform is helping to tackle the radiology backlog, um, which like a lot of the other backlogs in the NHS is really spiraling at the moment. So the digital tool helps clinicians to make the best possible referral decisions for each patient um, and also supports hospital-based radiology teams to vet and approve imaging requests more easily. The, the aim of the game is to get the referral to vetting time down. So yeah, they did some trials in Ireland and they managed to get that time down to 14 minutes, um, which is a phenomenal improvement on the previous time, which was seven and a half days. Um, and also it means that when patients are referred to see a radiologist, um, these referral decisions are more accurate. So they, only the patients who really need to be referred to the radiologists are being referred thanks to the support of the platform. Um, so positives all around. Uh, yeah, and exciting to see this getting rolled out across the UK. Yeah, in the, again, in the face of a, a quite a big problem, um, it says the CEO of the Royal College of Radiologists has talked about uh, a recent report that they've done. 98% of clinical directors in the NHS expressed concern over workforce morale, stress and burnout in their departments. 97% admitted concern over the backlogs and delays to patient care. 81% cited worries about patient safety. That's the CEO of the Royal College of Radiologists. My goodness, you know, when you see 90 plus percent of anything, you start to really question things. Uh, that is damning, isn't it? You'd put a number on that as well, I think, because... If you consider that only acute trusts are likely to have radiology departments and that there are 132 odd acute trusts, that's one person who was like, ah, we're good. There's no concern here over workforce morale, stress or burnout. One or two people were in that thing. Every other person in the UK is like, nah, this is a major concern. Either we've got two incredibly callous clinical directors or they've managed to sort stuff out and maybe they should be role models and they should be the places that we're looking to to improve processes in other places. But yeah, that's a terrifying statistic. Yeah, definitely. But clearly this is something that is going into help and somewhere that it is helping. So Jess, in terms of this making a difference then, you, you mentioned referral to vetting time dropping to 14 minutes from seven and a half days my goodness, that is a, a heck of a drop. What is, and forgive me for my ignorance here, what is referral to vetting time? So this means that when um, a patient is kind of, when the doctor thinks, oh, I think this patient needs to go and be seen by a radiologist, at the moment, they have, they're not, if they're not using a technology platform to do this, um, then the GP will just like look at the scans, look at the imaging and think, okay, I think this patient needs to be referred. And that can like, take a long time for some for that decision to be made and the checks to be made, but with the clinical decision support platform. So I think I, so I understand this now. So someone refers, but then someone vets the scan to see actually what needs to happen here. So there's, there's a triage bit that happens yeah. and, it, and that was taking, that was taking over a week just to get the vetting done. So now what's happening is with this platform, someone refers, but then within 14 minutes, someone's vetted it to know what the next step is. That is yeah. Yeah. outrageously good <laughs> in terms of like, you've literally dropped something from seven and a half days to 40 minutes. Like that's, again, like we're talking about big stats in sort of 98% of this and 97% of that. That's a, 
That's an enormous stat. It saw an overall drop in referral volume of 8.2% as well, helping free at capacity. Yeah, so it's fewer unnecessary tests and it's right tests at the right time. Mm. Um, so yeah, super important in reducing workloads. Mm. They're working with GE by the looks of things as well. They're looking with working with MRAD, the East Midlands Imaging Network, um, which is a group of eight trusts to do this. Yeah, clearly. I mean, backlog, guys, honestly. The, the, it's just getting it's just getting worse, isn't it? Like the just the amount of patients that are waiting for elective treatment and diagnostics, it's it seems like, you know, without everything we do across health tech, this is such a big problem to solve. And it's not just radiology, is it? As I say, it's diagnostics, it's it's elective treatment, it's all these different things. And yeah, there has to be like at least one of these stories that we talk about a week just to feel, make, make us feel good that we're getting over this. But yeah, I don't know. You guys optimistic about what's going on? It is super encouraging to see that there are technologies like this being developed to make a difference and that ha- actually have proven that they can make a difference to backlogs. But I think it's just the scale, which is the problem for every like one platform like this. There are just like it needs to be used across the whole country. It needs to be used consistently and it needs to be used by everyone in order for it to make a difference. Um, and just achieving that is a real hurdle. Yeah. And to that point, actually, Jess, on here, it does say that the collaboration was prompted by the government's £248 million investment in digitising diagnostics across the NHS. So to that point about needing scale, it is pleasing to see that there are these more central moves to try and facilitate that scale because, as we all know, adoption of anything into one site is so difficult. The fact that there's, you know, eight trusts here that are working together, great. The fact that X-Wave has partnered actually with the Royal College, again, when we're talking about scale, rather than them just doing this with individual sites or whatever, they're, they're partnering with the Royal College. This is the first time, by the way, it says in here, the Royal College has partnered with an external digital uh, clinical decision support provider. So, these are things that are facilitating that kind of scale. So yes, that is yeah, that that is quite encouraging. You know how I love being that guy. Oh, here we I'm go. going to be that guy. Two hundred and forty-eight million for diagnostics across one hundred and thirty-two acute trusts. Two hundred and whatever it is, fully mm. trusts is not a lot of money. Yeah, it's I was going to say the same thing. Great, it's some money, and I'm not like. Prime Minister, if you're listening, we'll keep that. We're happy with that. Maybe a bit more. But it's not very much money in the grand scheme of things. To win as an individual, unbelievable amount of money to spread across the entire NHS to improve one of the most important parts of the treatment pathway for every patient, pretty much. Doesn't butter many parsnips, to be honest. Yeah, and the fact that if you can get diagnostics right, that's cost savings in so many different places, like, getting diagnostics right yeah saves so much money so i'm surprised that there is not more money going into this and yeah hoping that there will be more money going into this in the future so if the overarching question there james is are you optimistic it's a resounding no from us (laughs) (laughs) ah come on guys we're in health tech we've got to say we're optimistic i'm optimistic (laughs) i'm optimistic i think i am I take your I take your guys' point though, right? Like I, I get it. The that yes, there isn't that that isn't going to butter many parsnips, as you have said, Henry. However, That's a ridiculous phrase. Why would you say that? <laughs> however, I think I've worked at arms length bodies. Like I, I get, I, I understand the decision making somewhat. I, I understand somewhat the challenges of you know 
setting aside a fund to be deployed and how you actually deploy it. There's so much that goes into it. And I, but I, I do think, you know, if, if this fund is set up, this solution in part is funded by or from this pot of money, where this happens across multiple sites and, and, and multiple times that this, this funding is going out, if that return on investment is seen uh, relatively quickly on all of those projects, it becomes much easier then, I think, if I'm going to put myself in the shoes of somebody giving out 248 million that, or has the capacity to build to, to do that on a larger scale, they, they might just want to put 248 million out and just see what happens with that initially. I get though that you know the more the better and the quicker the better and all the rest of it. But I think still it is encouraging that if this money is deployed, if the return on investment is seen and I mean, dropping something from seven and a half days to 14 minutes, I think then the challenge becomes, how do you actually then lobby to say very sensibly and realistically, look, you've given us this and this is what we've then done. Can you give us some more because we want to do it in more places and actually can you support us to scale? Can we get this company on the on the, the NIA, the NHS Innovation Accelerator, help them scale? Let's get more evidence. Let's get more through. And Perhaps the more nuanced conversation is around that. I don't know. I will always back health tech, right? I'll back it to the hill. But my frustrations perhaps with this lie in two things. One, the pot of money. And again, the results that have come out of this so far are fantastic, but I don't think that's enough. It's the silos that I think are a problem. So last week, for for reasons that no one needs to know about, uh, I was reading West Yorkshire Combined Authorities Health Tech Strategy, which is a really (laughs) smart document. And it's a... (laughs) It was relevant to work. I'm not just like, I'm just run out of things to read. Um, <laughs> what are you reading, darling? Oh, just the health tech strategy of the West Yorkshire Combined Authority. Oh, lovely. Lovely. I've heard the sequel's good. Um, no, so I was reading that and it's a five-year plan, but it involves everyone. It involves the council, the NHS, uh, local mental health services, like loads of different things. And it's a really good, well-thought-out combined document. My frustration is that you, you give a little bit of money to radiology and you might fix something in radiology and then roll that out across trusts. But there's there's never been a really comprehensive health tech, top-down health tech strategy that says everything needs to work together. There are all these solutions. And I think that's where a lot of people in the industry's frustrations come from. Like they can change lives, but they can't get into the NHS because no one really knows what they're meant to be doing with certain budgets, certain pots. People don't know they have access to them. They might not be aware of how to get access to them. And I Recently, I've become increasingly frustrated and it ties into something we talked to Peter uh, from the Talking Health Tech podcast about the other week. There, there isn't a top-down strategy. So you end up with this, here's 250 million for this little problem. Here's 400 million for this problem, 100 million. I guess I'm just getting increasingly frustrated that we don't have a centralised um, strategy for implementing health tech, mm. unlike the West Yorkshire Combined Authority, who I'm not getting paid to talk about, by the way, even if it sounds like it. Hashtag spawn, hashtag ad. Honestly, it's a really, really good strategy. <laughs> so I wonder if you wanted to put something like that together, and this is a this is a really big question here, how on earth, how on earth would you get that writ- written or how, who would... Right. Who would put that together? Who do you need around the table to decide what that strategy is? Because in part, that's an industry problem. In part, that's a a commissioning problem. So an NHS England problem. In part, you could name any of the other arm's length bodies and say that in part, that's probably their responsibility as well to get involved. In part, patient advocacy. Like, what would that top down strategy look like? Is it that this becomes such such a financial either problem or massive win for a government 
that actually all of a sudden they go, hold on a minute, we could actually be dealing with political suicide here and the collapse of the NHS. It might actually be a big enough problem here at this point that people are just going in their droves to private health insurance. We need to actually save the NHS properly here. It's big enough that we're actually going to do this top-down strategy. If so, who do they get around the table? How do you? How, how would you do that? I don't know if I if if it was me. Uh, obviously, I, I've got a couple of hours uh, later on today, so I might have a bash at it. But um, if I was, if it was me, and I was trying to organise a digital strategy for the NHS, uh, I might start with a body like NHS Digital uh, to sort of lead that work, just because. You know, nominative determinism and all that. Um, but you have to have everyone's involvement. You have to have local authorities' involvement. Maybe it is a local thing. Maybe there's a national strategy and then local things, which is what the ICS strategies are meant to be. But there isn't a cohesive, this is how we're going to use health tech plan from, I sort of think of it from like EPR out, from like patient record out. Like, how does everything get back into that? Because ultimately, if you've got all the information about that patient in one place, that's a huge problem solved. So how do you get everything that could help to talk to that system you need to have those people there you need to have people who create frameworks and apis and all the exciting things that means that interaction is possible and the interoperability is possible and again we come back to interoperability on this pod but there, there's got to be something it, it blows my mind every week that there isn't a top-down health tech strategy within health and social care in this country particularly and i appreciate a lot of his time in office was COVIDed, particularly given that Matt Hancock was um, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care for such a long time, because he was a, whatever you think of him, was a very strong advocate for health tech. It's very odd to me that we've never had a national health tech strategy. And I think it is vital for not just the continued health of or the improving health of the NHS as a body and the patients who attend NHS uh, organizations but also for the wider health tech ecosystem there is really one customer for health tech organizations in the uk and at the moment there is not a central strategy that says this is how we effectively use all of the amazing innovation that our sector is creating well you can't disagree can you it clearly would be a great it's an interesting way of thinking about it actually electronic patient records out because that is actually where everything ultimately needs to goes. return to yeah what well, goes from and needs to return to you start yeah. at the end right you start at the end of every problem you start with mm. what's the outcome you want which is patient gets better mm. and then you have to work back till you get to the big tech blockage which is not all of the information is going mm. into the same place mm. we're still arguing about when mm. we're going to have every trust having eprs like yeah. there's still debate about in what year that's insane they started in the 80s I think it it would help so much with focus, wouldn't it? Because it it almost it feels like that in part health tech is a bit all over the place. Actually, that that going back to that medical malpractice article and what the Lancet wrote, and just how, just really simply, just how they split up the different sorry, it's nature like how how they split up the different categories of health tech, um, like M Health apps, AI and clinical decision support. Uh, telehealth, electronic medical records, even that was just a really nice structure of just, okay, they're the they're broadly the top things. It feels like if we had similar headings with then broadly what we wanted the direction of travel to be with a few goals and a few objectives in something like a report, and then those goals and objectives are then attributed to various arm's length bodies to take care of by a certain date, 
and to work with each other in certain ways and each one has got certain ones that are responsible for which etc it just it seems like a good it seems like a good idea it, perhaps it is just an obscene amount of work to do and perhaps there are just too many biases innately in the system and disagreements of what we were to prioritize but I, I do kind of feel that as you were talking there Henry like the focus that that would bring on I know there's loads of problems but we've identified these as as upstream as we can get if we just focus on these for the next two years get them right and then we'll look at the next layer of things and there might be eight things in the next layer and then 32 things in the layer below that but if we could just prioritize the problems to solve and make those infrastructure problems we can fix that and then enable so much innovation downstream from there that yeah it seems like a, a strategy would give us all a bit more focus on that yeah and it would help even when you're considering what to invest in, if you know that things are government priority, if you know that because they're in this strategy that, I mean, the NHS broadly has these strategies when it comes to, you know, naming diabetes and, and these, and you can see where priorities then are. And, and that's leadership, isn't it? Leadership is just setting a few things that you consider important to then give a whole organisation a bit more focus. And perhaps... That does need to happen in health tech um, to align us all from funding to growing companies to assigning focuses in those companies and certain products and the way they're built and would be nice, wouldn't it? And let's not let's not pretend that if you did this, though, it would mean some companies disappeared because they simply would well, be deprioritized. Yeah, look, look, let's um, let's scribble some thoughts down. I'll get Izzy to whack the Somex logo on it. I'll ping it over to his <laughs> current Secretary of State for Health and Associates. It's, we're recording this on Friday, so it's Steve Barkley right now by the time you listen to this. It could be anyone. It could be us. So, Maybe uh, it's something we should tackle on the next Somex team day. I think so. Uh, we'll do yeah. pic- Pictionary first. Always start with Pictionary. Uh, that and then, and then Crazy Golf. Uh, and that's... That's that sounds like a good yeah, day. Yeah, then Nuno can also contribute thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Absolutely. We'll bring, bring you veterinary back in. Absolutely. What an episode that was. Thank you, guys. If you want to grab any of the uh, stories that you've heard today, well, some of what you've heard today anyway, you can find that in Health Tech Pigeon, uh, which you can get at healthtechpigeon.com. That's a newsletter you're going to get every Sunday. If you want to get in touch with any of us, uh, you can find the links to our LinkedIn profiles in the description of this episode. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be back next week. 